0: Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways, and thank you for joining us on this show. This week, I have a special guest. The uh, guest that I have is Lisa Fischel-Wolovic. She's been on the show before talking about uh, some issues that we are all concerned about. Today, she's here to talk about a new study that she's done, Traumatic Exposure in Children During Custody Litigation. Welcome, Lisa. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you
0: you for having me. Very nice to hear very nice to have you on again. I was so excited when I saw your new study because we all know how these uh, hot and contested uh, child custody cases in family courts uh, can uh, tear up families even more so than they've ever been, and it seems like children are often um, the victims of that. And so you looked at this. What what caused you to look at this particular study?
1: Well. Um, so I'm an attorney as well as um, a social worker, and I practice representing battered mothers in child, protective mothers during child custody cases. So um, what I did here um, at Mohana's request, actually, Dr. Hanna's request, was I basically did a meta-analysis and, and talked about a lot of the issues and looked at the research um, about... So basically um,
0: let me just for our listeners who might not know what meta analysis is. Basically, you didn't go out and do your own survey or anything, but what you no, did was no. you examined all the, the other ones that are out there.
1: That's correct. That's correct. Um, I'll try and keep this kind of simpler language. So, well, um, oh, that's okay. basic. I'm sorry? That's Hello?
0: You're, you're, okay. I, I just so, wanted to make um, people understand
1: So a lot of the issues that we see now in child custody cases um, during either divorce or separation, whether people are married or unmarried, is that um, fathers, and particularly I think that it's probably uh, more abusive fathers, are asking for more and more times, overnight times, um, joint legal custody or even custody with younger and younger children. And the question is, um, what do we know about this? And is this okay for children developmentally? And so I really, you know, I can I can tell you that I've been kind of shocked at how young some of these children are. So for example, I'm starting to see um, nursing infants um, as young as six months old, in which fathers have enormous amount of overnight time. Um, In one case, the child was nine months old, still nursing, which is developmentally appropriate. The American Academy of Pediatrics thinks that it's a very important thing to do, uh, at least for 12 months, if not longer. And so yet we're having overnights um, with children, which interferes um, both with attachment, but also if someone's trying to nurse a baby. And then we're seeing this kind of enormous separation which to children seems like a very long period of time, one week on, one week off, um, without really any regard for how does this work or what was the family history, who was the primary caregiver of these children. Yeah.
0: So yeah. because yeah. of that, yeah. I
1: started to really look at what does the research tell us? Um, is this a good idea? And I also wanted to make recommendations to um, what will work in child custody cases and and my particular focus is on representing battered protective mothers so um i looked at it from that lens as well as what does domestic violence do to very young children and to their development and attachment
0: so we know from various studies, uh, Joan Meyer, et cetera, et cetera, that what you were saying about fathers, particularly abusive fathers, uh, getting more and more custody um, and sometimes exclusive custody, uh, often mm-hmm. exclusive custody. Um, right. But the, the point that you bring up about infants, and I think I told you off air about a, a situation where I had a young woman come up to me, a very young woman. She was still a teenager, had had a baby with her boyfriend. The baby was two weeks old. And the judge required custody one week with father, one week with mother. At two weeks. Well, I can I only tell you that, Yeah. Raised, uh, I, I, I have to think that as a person who is raised to babies, that's not good. That's not good for that baby.
1: It really does seem like it, common sense, right? From everything we know about raising babies. And it's not that fathers don't have an emotional relationship and a significant importance if they're good fathers in children's lives, but at that age, what we really want to see is, and from looking at the research, um, you want to see children have a primary stable attachment with pretty much one caregiver, right? It doesn't mean that mom doesn't get a break, but it typically is mom if we look at all the research on this, and so there we are just basically interfering with it completely, um, and so what do we know about what does that mean, and MacIntosh's research, I think, is the person we really should look at a lot of research coming out of Australia. And basically what she said is that um, from zero to two years of age, that children with more than one overnight a week, um, so in other words, infants, zero to two, um, had you know, very difficult, had difficulty with emotional regulation in those children. Um, and that's important. And this was regardless of their socioeconomic background, regardless of class. Um, but it's still, um, they had a cluster kind of of stress regulation problems, which is what you don't want to do and to see happen. So older infants, why, I would guess I would say preschoolers, toddlers, two to three, they also had a lot of problematic behaviors when they had extensive overnights. So for two to three, they're talking about if they had more than two overnights a week. With the, what they call the second parent, they had... Uh, heightened separation anxiety, aggression, eating problems, and poor persistence in tasks. So what does that mean? I mean, it basically means that children have difficulty um, engaging in the world and learning things because you have to persist if you want to accomplish something. So we see children with sleep disturbances and anxiety and cognitive problems. All of which doesn't look good for later in life. So I think we've kind of embarked on a course without enough research, without listening to the researchers in these areas, and it's gonna. I I don't know what it's going to mean in terms of um, children's development and adult and adulthood later.
0: Yeah, it's kind of scary, isn't it? It's it's scary. any of your I really do. yeah. In any of your research, did you find? Um, uh, particular court systems or particular um, areas geographically where this was happening more frequently than others. I know that's kind of a weird question. So if that didn't pop up, don't you know that's fine. It just occurs to me that you know is, is this something where you know certain areas of our country tend to be doing it more? Or?
1: I'm hearing anecdotally that it's all over. That it's a national problem. Um, I practice in New York City. I do see it here. Um, It seems to be sort of the cutting edge. So um, maybe it's more prevalent, and I'm just guessing, maybe it's more prevalent in the cities um, where people are, you know, sort of like this is the newest thing to do. I don't know. Um, But I think it's sort of as if we're sort of setting aside what the pediatricians know. We're setting aside what mental health professionals know. And we're saying that children can bond equally with two parents. I think they bond differently, and I think the primary attachment has typically been with women. Um, yeah. You know, does well, that, that mean that a father can't parent effectively? No, of course not. But at a very young, vulnerable point, it's almost as if we're putting in a political agenda instead of looking at what babies need to develop. And that's oh, well, superimposed over the yep. whole thing.
0: It would be shocking if we were doing that. I, I'm just—I would just be flabbergasted if we were actually opposing political <laughs> over, over social social policy. Um. Right, right,
1: <laughs> exactly. It's kind of an understatement oh here. Yes.
0: <laughs> well, and I do think—and so. we really and, shouldn't and,
1: ignore the father's rights movement and um, its role in in these kinds of things. I mean, my own theory is that. A father who is not abusive doesn't want overnights with such a young infant. They're kind of going to wait until the child's ready. And they can have plenty of day visits, right? And they're not trying to control the other parent. But if you're looking at parents, you know, typically fathers who are abusive, who are um, controlling, coercively controlling is what Evan Stark would say. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they can't let anything alone, right? They've got to control the whole thing. So if she's nursing, yeah, she's coddling the baby, you know, it, it's all about them. Yes, exactly. And we
0: are seeing that more and more.
1: And it seems to me
0: that the scientific community is, is noticing this more and more. But for some reason, the legal community is still back on the bandwagon of fathers can be just as good and therefore better.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore it, better. And Isn't it, that interesting? You know, really. And the I other mean, thing is... Like, Go ahead. No, I said the other thing is that, you know, we're not looking at the role of domestic violence and what this means for very small children because I think the common thinking is, which I talk about in my article, um, the that, common thinking is that, you know, children are resilient and little ones are too young to understand what's happening. But now we have... Um, post-traumatic stress disorder recognized in the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Diagnoses, and um, this is put out by the, you know, APA, and it's basically saying that um, infants can have, it's, this is sort of well accepted, right, infants can have post-traumatic stress disorder, and they can have it if they witness an attack on their caregiver or on themselves. So we know that infants may not have the words to understand what they experience and that's a problem because later they do need to have language to put to this experience. And we know that they're affected by it and we know that when there's domestic violence, their feeling of trust in the world is diminished and their feeling that their primary caregiver, their mother can protect them and keep them safe is damaged. So what we're seeing, what the research indicates is that there is a change in how they have the attachment styles that they have. So they don't feel that the world is a consistent and safe place. And that's a very, very scary thing for young children. So it means that they have problems in their attachment. So why does that matter? What kind of an attachment a child has with a primary caregiver the research indicates that from these basic, prime, you know, very early relationships comes the child's ability to regulate stress, to take on new tasks, to confront difficult situations, and um, to manage their own feelings and to self-soothe. All that's, like, really important when they have to sit still in class and listen to directions and learn. Right. So it's impacting them in a lot of ways. And they know that domestic the researchers know that seeing or witnessing or hearing or being exposed to domestic violence in the home or the constant denigration that goes with it. Um, if you look at Lindy Bankrupt's work, he's talking about just exposure to the batterer as a parent, not simply the act of domestic violence. I think that's very important. So this stuff is really destructive in the home life, it's destructive to children's development and their ability to feel that someone else can protect them. So they see a lot no. more in conduct disorders and boys, I mean, problems. Yes. Yeah.
0: Um, we, we know and we already have, you've already pointed out that, you know, you've got, you know, 100% of divorces out there and 90% of them, everybody thinks they got the short end of the stick, but everybody works it out and mm-hmm. it, they never go to court. It, 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 they work it out. And then you've got that, I believe it's actually 8%, but I'm not positive. It's less than 10%, where exactly. there is a history of abuse, where there is uh, you know, the, what, what the industry calls high-conflict divorces. Um, and we're looking at children of that. Um, do we see the same, or were you able to tell, whether we see the same outcomes for children who are moved between residences and have overnights With high-conflict parents, is that the same as if there were not the high-conflict? That's a really important
1: question, right? That's an important question. Um, One of the things I talk about in my book called Traumatic Divorce and Separation with Oxford University Press is that I don't don't think there's a real strong empirical basis for calling things high-conflict. Conflict Conflict sort of implies that there's mutual conflict. Abuse Mm -hmm. is not mutual. Abuse is uh, it's where somebody else is exerting coercive control over the rest of the family. Um, so, in but in those families, and even in families where there is you know less distressed families is what um, Amato would would call them. I think that's that's fine to use that. But Macintosh's um, research says that regardless of um, the kind of family it is, that those kinds of overnights in young children under the age of four are really not a good idea. And I'm gonna go further. I'm gonna and this is kind of radical, but I think that in children under seven, if they're not ready to have extensive overnights, then we shouldn't be doing it. We should be looking at what the child wants. I always think about it in terms of like when is the kid ready to have a sleepover? You know, because (laughs) I remember when yeah. my children were little, there was always that one kid who would come over for the birthday party to sleep over and you'd have to call the mom in the middle of the night, remember? And they'd have There's to come pick a, yep, up their kid because yeah. they couldn't handle it, right? So it just doesn't mean that the child didn't go on to be like a normal adult, right? It just meant that they weren't yeah. ready. So I think that's something yeah. that a good parent, a good non-custodial parent is able to accept. And say, okay, you know, um, you don't have to sleep over tonight, or you'll sleep over one night on the weekend and not two nights and not three nights, right? Um, and yes. you'll sleep over when you're ready. I mean what is what is so terrible <laughs> if we all do that? We sort of have this one size fits all, you know, schedule in mind and now the one size fits all is getting, you know, more and more extensive so the kids are almost half the time. But what we're so not asking for is
0: you know, the the way you phrase your question is the way we, we would think those questions would be phrased. But in my experience, in these, you know, uh, abusive situations, that's not mm-hmm. the question that's being asked. The question that's being asked is, where's my share? What's right, you know, where's my part? Um, and that's, it's not what's right. best for the child at all. Well, okay,
1: so think about... We don't have a diagnosis for batterers at this point, um, but we know that there are common traits, and one is a sense of entitlement. Um, the other yeah. is manipulation. So um, if you have a sense of entitlement, my share, that, that's really well said, Heather, that's great, um, then it tells us that they're not thinking about what's right for the kid. And we're supposed no. to be thinking about the best interests of the child and it's it's not about that. I hear an awful lot of judges say, you're interfering with the father's you know parental rights, like yes. we treat yeah. it,
0: it appears to me it appears to me that courts treat children like you know uh, grandma's property uh, Stemware. yes, exactly, like women, no, mm. that was that that stemware belonged to my grandmother, so I'm keeping the glasses and Who cares whether I'm living in a house trailer that's bumping up and down and you live in a stable mansion? I'm getting the stemware because it's mine. And that's the sense that I get about these uh, custody issues. It doesn't have to do with the child. But this is a departure from how uh, it was when I was growing up, at least the assumption was that there were what we called the tender years where children needed to be with their moms. And nobody questioned that. Why did that change? Well, now the now the attitude seems to be no, mine, 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 fifty-fifty at least. Um, yeah, uh, at it, least. Where? At where least. Did, when
1: did that change? Well, it's changed early on. It changed, I would say, in the 1970s, early 1970s. In New York, we had a court case, Bennett versus Jeffries, where wow. the courts, you know, really articulated this new standard, which is the best interest of the child, which is supposed to be a gender-neutral. Um, standard um, i know joe myers has written some interesting things about about what does it really mean what's wrong and there are other you know people who have written about it what's wrong with saying something is in the best interest of the child and the problem is it's kind of vague and it's kind of subjective if i was to ask your viewers what's in the best interest of the children in your you know you know to be raised in a household what's their best interest if there were 100 people listening you're going to get 100 different versions of what's the best interest and a lot of the researchers have said that when things are this vague and subjective then what happens is people's biases come to the fore and we know that there's gender bias against women in the courthouse um there's been you know, 43 studies across the nation found the same thing. In the 1980s and early 1990s, we've had three human action, you know, participatory rights um, studies that have said this is, you know, a significant problem that you know battered women and their care and their advocates don't feel safe in the courthouse. Um, you know, and women anecdotally are talking about how they lose custody of their children if they're not believed when they talk about allegations of domestic violence or abuse. So somehow it's morphed into something else because we know that we're holding women to a different standard of parenting, of truthfulness than men. And therefore then when you're doing a contested trial, think about all the typically, not always, but typically the assets are on one side, right? Men are still making a whole lot more than women. So they're coming in with lawyers and experts and it's a lot harder to prove your case. I think there's a backlash yes. that women have returned to work. And the thing is that I say to people is that, yes, women are working. So now they have two jobs. One is taking yes, care exactly. of their children. And it doesn't mean the fathers don't do stuff, but the Pew study said that, yeah, they're doing more. And they thought that was great, but women are still doing more.
0: But a tiny bit more. It's nowhere close to even half. No, you know, I, yeah, I'm familiar with that Pew research and it's like, yeah, okay, they're doing more than their grandfathers did, but not that much. more. And yet the expectation, I mean, I, I deal with a lot of young people and in my generation, it was uh, still a choice. Do you want to be your primary caregiver for your children or do you want to be primarily a worker it was still a Mm -hmm. choice that women were making um, with various degrees of difficulty and various outcomes, but it was their choice. Now with the young women that I see who are in their late twenties, thirties, childbearing years, it is not a choice. They are expected by their families and their spouses that they will have the family and that they will keep contributing significantly to the family income. And I, of course, you know, I always say I'm the last living 1970s feminist. But to me, I think, you know, what what happened to choice? I thought it was all about having a choice of what you wanted to do. Um, Well, economically,
1: we know that women have to, that everybody needs two breadwinners in the family. That's, you know, to hold the same standard of living and not to fall behind. And sometimes people are working two jobs. So, Mm -hmm. yes, I think that, I think men are doing more, but I don't think they're doing this much more yet no, or and maybe they no. won't well,
0: and as you pointed out, the few research indicated that that yes they're doing right. more they're doing about twenty uh, percent more than their fathers did, um, but that still falls short way short of fifty percent of child rearing and household tens so and the and the other thing is these, you
1: have to think about just the enormous um the amount of work that takes place when people have to juggle all of this and you know, just what it means, you know, for children that they continue doing it. So they have caregivers when they're at work, but um that does not mean that they're not the primary person. I don't think mental health professionals have figured out how to evaluate that.
0: Yeah. Well we have a whole generation they can look at that was primarily raised by um caregivers other than their parents um so i don't know i'm not up on that research one of the things we're straying a little bit from court but i think it's significant for court because um we're trying to talk about when did the tender years doctrine change where there was an assumption that babies needed mom Uh, when did that change and you mentioned the early 70s and i have to bring it back again I, i i'm hesitant to say this but I'm wondering I remember marching in the streets saying Dads going to be just as good a parents as moms. Dads going to be just you know, dads need to pick up the pick up the cudgel and start taking day and I'm thinking, Holy cow, did this that morph into dads are better caregivers than moms in court eyes, in
1: judges' eyes? I, I you well, know did we I think that there's um a very subtle and not-so-subtle gender bias against women. A good enough mother is has to be much more than a good father, and that's one thing. Um, I think you also have to think about the enormous economic interest of so what's happened in the last 30 years. One thing that's happened is mandatory child support guidelines um, sometimes we also more recently have mandatory spousal support, so there's a significant financial cost to fathers right when there's a divorce and what they used to be when they did the early studies on gender bias against women in the courts, it was basically bi gender gender issues in the court, and they thought that they found that it was basically bias against women um This is not a surprise, but um what was happening in the 80s is when there would be a divorce, the research indicated in all these studies that men's standard of living, you've heard this, right, men's standard of living went yes. up at the divorce and women's plummeted. So what yes. did they do? As a result, they and these were good things, right, there were changes like mandatory child support guidelines so it wasn't just discretionary. Child support order in Tennessee is um, honored and respected and enforced if you live in New York, um, and that didn't used to be the case. But so now, financially, this is huge, right? This is this means that um, fathers will pay a significant amount of child support, which children need. This is good. But so the stakes are higher, mm-hmm. right? So if you have 50% of the time, nobody's paying child support for the most part. So child so
0: custody becomes a bottom-line issue, not necessarily an emotional issue? Well, not in all
1: cases, but in many cases. I mean, it is conceivable that you might have a family where there's an amicable divorce and they live near each other and the children go back and forth as they want to because it doesn't really affect where they go to school. You know, they're living equidistant to the school from either parent. But what if somebody's imposing that on the other person? What if somebody sets you up and moves close by, you just can't get away from this, right? That's part of force of control. And you really need to take a history of the family. Um, I also think that when people decide on joint custody, that it can't be forced, that it should be something that people together decide, like we can work together on this and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, But Technically, the law is that you're not supposed to enforce joint legal custody when parents don't get along. There, are more and more, we're seeing these passage of um, states passing laws that there's the, pre- the presumption is that joint legal custody is better for the parent. So it becomes very difficult, and you have to be a friendly parent, right? That's also the statute. Like to be a friendly parent, the custodial parent has to support the relationship of the non-custodial parent. So in that context, in that lens, it becomes very problematic if you say, I want supervised visits. I can't work with him because he's abusive and he undermines me and he's volatile. I need to be able to make decisions so that every decision is not a war for my children. And so then you're the hostile parent, right? (laughs) And so that's, that's really, that's sort of what's going on here. We have competing presumptions. We have laws that were passed that say, that um, we have to take into consideration the proven existence of domestic violence in custody and visitation. And then the Fathers' Rights Group said we also have to have friendly parent statutes. And now the newest thing is joint legal presumptions. So you're getting to this very high burden that you have to prove domestic violence to avoid the joint legal custody presumption.
0: It makes. I'm not sure if that makes sense, yeah. so... It does. It makes perfect sense, and that puts mothers between a rock and a hard place. I've already right. heard about um, different mothers being advised to not bring up any abuse of the children, that it will, in fact, increase the likelihood that the father will, the abusive father, will get custody, full custody of the kids. Um, right. I guess you know. Uh, to me, I look at this stuff and. Of course, I you know, and, and forgive me, I know you're an attorney, but attorneys think differently from other people.
1: <laughs> and Yes, that's true. I'm also a social worker, so I'm a little bit not quite okay. so in that. Right, I'm a hybrid here.
0: Okay, all right. Um, but they do, and they are somehow able to dismiss some of these other issues that, uh, you know, it, I, I always say courts are about, You know, a lot of folks who've never been through family court think that family courts are about justice. You know, I mean, I've even heard people say, well, why doesn't he take him to court, you know, and make him stop? Ouch. And, yeah. Yes, exactly. The opposite will likely happen. Um, You know, people think courts are all about fairness and justice. Courts, in my view, and again, I'm stepping on toes, I'm sorry, but it's more about what did somebody previously write and what pieces of paper do we have? And it almost seems like the one with the most pieces of paper or the biggest typing on those papers is the one who will predominate.
1: Mm-hmm. And I know that's yeah. a
0: sweeping generalization, but that's the way it appears. And one of the know, things
1: these, that i Yeah, go ahead. Go, well, I'm I,
0: I just see some really egregious things where someone who's not involved in the legal system would look at it and go, what were they thinking? How could they possibly do this to this child well, or one, to this family? Well, one
1: thing that I talk about um, kind of over and over again, both in the article that just came out in the Family and Intimate Partner Violence Quarterly and in my book on Traumatic Divorce and Separation with Oxford University Press. One of the problems that I see with the family court is that we have a lack of public awareness of what goes on pretty much the doors are closed. Yes, I know that it says technically the public can go in, but they can be the doors can be closed at the discretion of the judge. And on any given day, if you try and walk in and say, I just want to observe today, pretty much they're going to escort you out. So if you don't have a case there, if you're not a litigant or an attorney with a case there. And a lot of the more recent studies have talked about how we need court observers. Because in criminal courts, their approach to domestic violence has improved. You know, things are better there. But now in family courts, it's really lagging behind. And so one of the really obvious things is that the courts are closed and the public doesn't see what's going on. I think when things are not, I think we can respect privacy, and we do need to. So just like a rape victim, the names are not disclosed, and the press doesn't, you know, take pictures and all this. We can do that in the family courts as well, and we should. But, you know, you can use pseudonames. You can ensure that um, the press can't give out people's names in a nasty custody battle. All of those protective orders can be done, and there can be penalties if people abuse it. But if we don't have oversight, that's a problem. We need to have oversight, I think, in how we select judges, and we need to have oversight into the custody cases so the people can say, wait, 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 what are you doing? You're letting this little baby go 50%? Wait, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't pass the man on the street test. That doesn't seem yes. to make common sense. Well,
0: I think your point about these things happening kind of in isolation is absolutely true. And in a lot of these cases, the very few that have gotten publicity um, it's astonishing how quickly judges want to slap gag orders on, on mothers who are complaining about these situations. Um, right. you know, they they want, they want to keep it quiet and isolated. And they're allowed, right. judges are allowed to do pretty much whatever they want. Um, even in some of these horribly egregious cases, I'm thinking of the case in Montana where the teacher repeatedly raped his student who then committed suicide and the judge sentenced him finally to the 30 days time served because he said wow. that the, the girl was just as much to blame and it was a huge oh hue and outcry and it well, this was about two years ago and it went before Judicial Review Commission and he got a hand slap you know last year the judge in Michigan who took away three teenage children uh, and sent them to a reunification camp and you know and that got a hue and cry finally thankfully and She was sent before the Judicial Commission, and again, a hand slap, and she went back into her courtroom. There seems to be no way to oversee any of the egregious behavior these judges do. And, of course, attorneys who have to work, you know, I mean, as an attorney, you don't want to tick off the judge that you might have to have a Mm -hmm. case before. So it seems like such a closed system that then has everyday citizens going in with these huge problems. And then if the judge imposes gag orders or, I mean, I, and I have heard of cases where a judge will say, no, you can't come in. No, people can't come in and observe, which I thought was unconstitutional, but what do I know? Um, and and they do it. And they just kind of uh, have these little fiefdoms where there's no scrutiny and no consequences. Well, That's how it well, appears so to we, me as an outsider.
1: Right. Well, we do want judges to not be worried about losing their job if they make an unpopular decision. You know, judicial independence is important. And there's a reason for that. So we have to figure out how to balance this, though. Um, one of the um, task force, you know, that did all this research, I think it's the Wellesley Battered Mothers Project, Massachusetts. I, You know, one of the things they were saying is, have battered women on the judicial selection committee. And when I asked at the Battered Mother's Child Custody Conference up in Albany. I said, how does that sound to you? People said, sounds good. Because <laughs> you know, what yeah. you want to try and weed out are people with biases. I always remember doing the training because there was, when we passed the Violence Against Women Act, I say we, but it was you know the Congress, the Senate, and all that. And thanks to Joe Biden and uh, Paul Wellstone and his wife, Sheila, um, it's a very important piece of legislation. But it also affected things in the courts, right, because there were domestic violence laws that were, you know, must arrest laws and things like that that grew up around the country at that time. So we were asked, a group of us, to go around the state and train judges and court personnel, and this was like in the mid-1990s, right, to train them about yeah. domestic violence. Well, some people were really interested and motivated, um, particularly women, women of color who were judges, you know, they were very interested. But I remember the older judges being livid. Nobody's going to tell me what to do in my courtroom is what I heard a lot. So what's that about? Is that attitude still there? I don't know. And that's only anecdote. Obviously, I don't, you know, and I'm not saying that there can't be, um, you know, a judge who's, you know, can be you know, who's not meeting that criteria, who's going to be reasonable and informed and compassionate and follow the law. But there seems to be sort of this displaced thing where, you know, some people feel like, you know, these new laws, must arrest laws, um, mandatory arrest, um, child support guidelines, uh, considering domestic violence, it seems to really be threatening to a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, and I think we're I think seeing a backlash. Yeah. I And I also, I hear a lot of people say, well, we need to educate, we need to educate, we need to educate. Well, that's wonderful and all well and good, but you're not going to educate anybody who doesn't want to be educated. I don't care how hard you try. And if judges don't, don't see any need for education about domestic violence and abuse and you know child custody issues, they're not. You can give them all the seminars you
1: want, and it's not going to make one whit of difference. So what what would work then is the question. And perhaps it's more oversight. I
0: think it's more oversight. I mean, I was I, I actually spent some time uh, earlier this week. Try and call around and see because I wanted to do a, a uh, show on court watches, and mm, there used to wonderful. be a push for court watch, but I had a devil of a time finding anyone who is do, currently doing court watches. And there's a program think in Olympia,
1: Washington. That's I know that they're uh-huh. doing it, so you might want to look into that one. Okay, still there. Um I hope it is. <laughs>
0: yeah i i don't know um but i think that you know uh, uh, oh, what what do they call it when government officials uh, uh, have to meet in in broad daylight or you know the the euphemism is uh, um but the the daylight laws or whatever i uh, i think those need to apply to courts and
1: yeah, although i do too. i,
0: I, I I see the need that maybe once in a while there's some highly sensitive case where it needs to be closed to the public. I think for the most part, you know, uh uh, that should be a huge rare exception. People, citizens, should be able to go in and see what's going on in court um, and be able to evaluate. I've never, I, I consider myself reasonably well educated, reasonably intelligent and picking judges to vote for. In our state, you vote for them. They're not appointed, and I, oh, I think there's pros and cons to each issue. How do you vote for these people? How do you exactly. vote for them? You, don't, you just don't have a clue. And, uh, you know, we have to, I think, open up this system. Quit making it so secretive and magical. Quit giving this kind of unbridled power to one man or woman sitting at a bench where there will be very, very few consequences, if
1: any, no matter how egregious the behavior. I would would agree. I think that um, accountability really matters. And I do want to point out that I've seen a couple of very good judges take really tough stances on domestic violence in custody or just abuse cases, and I've seen them be just drummed out of the courthouse and lose their position. That's the other side. I believe in it. Right? Yeah. Um, so that's yeah. that's one problem. Um, they have to, so they do have to be independent, but there needs to be public oversight. You know, something else that always pops up in my mind is that when they're running for office and they have these campaigns, so then lawyers are donating money to their campaign sometimes. How proper yeah. is that? Exactly. Exactly. And then when because they're in care, court, does that... No, go ahead.
0: It has to have an influence. I mean, I don't care how pure of soul and 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 pure of heart you are. There has to be a, a, some sort of subtle, you know, subconscious influence. If you look at lawyer A in front of you and know that he supported you, you know, hundred percent in your campaign, and lawyer B who was working for the other guy, you know, I mean, it has to, it has to have some influence even if it's very subtle I would think we're just human beings I would even if we... I would
1: think there's also something like in New York it's not you know it's not prohibited to give gifts to the judge not money but you oh, can really? give gifts I think I'm pretty sure so that vacation, that's, you know, that's what's kind of been explained and... well come to yeah. my home and you know use my pool I won't be there so have you know so um, wow it raises questions of influence, and I think that you know one is like you raise the other issues: should judges be elected? I yeah. and how can you how can, how do you what do you who are you voting for? You don't know, um, so that's a no. problem. And, on the hand, and then it,
0: on the other hand, if they're appointed, which is the other option,
1: then you right. get the whole cronyism thing,
0: you know. Right. Um That's yeah, right. I'm vote for you know, we we're gonna appoint Joe, he's a good guy and he believes the way we do, which includes our biases. Right. Which um our
1: bias. you know, and, and
0: again these things are subtle. You know, I mean nobody I'm sure, or very few people are sitting on a bench saying, Okay, I'm up here to exercise my biases. I mean nobody thinks they're doing that. Um but we do. We're human beings. Um The other thing I, I, I do want to believe-
1: say is well, the other thing I wanted to yep. say is that um, family courts are first responders, and people work pretty much pretty hard. Um, they do need training, and they do need support and help, and we don't put money into these systems in the same way that we should. Um, mm-hmm. And they're, they're, you know, often people are not trained and have to, you know, make very, you know, enormous decisions quickly about who can go home yeah with this family who, you know, should I give this woman an order protection and get him out of the house, and should I make this order protection for the kids as well? You know, those are very critical life and death decisions that are being made in the family courts all the time with very little staff and very little information and not enough, you know, backup. Um, It would be great if we had courts where there were a lot of services in the courthouse. You know, sometimes we have this, but, you know, really on a larger scale particularly because mm-hmm. you're getting families in crisis and we don't make it enough of priority.
0: Well, and because of that, I mean, I've heard people saying that in family court, you don't have the same standards as you do in a criminal court um, right. where, you know, I mean, anybody who watches TV, you know, the, the burden of truth or, or the burden of, the uh, you know, under I mean, there, reasonable doubt. No right. Yeah. 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 That kind of thing. And that none of those applies in family court. Um, Pretty much that's true, except
1: with violations of orders of protection, right? So it's it's like 51% more likely than not, or sometimes it's clear Mm -hmm. and convincing evidence, which is somewhat higher but not as high as um, beyond a reasonable doubt.
0: Well, there is a movement, uh, and I can't remember right now where it is, but I know I've spoken with uh, some folks who are pushing for jury trials for family court. How, have oh. you heard about that? And if well, how do you think... I, and again, we're we're trying to talk about the children. So how, you know, would any of this minimize impact on the children?
1: Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know enough about it yet to really give an opinion. Um, I can't say. I don't know what I think about that because certainly juries can be manipulated to some extent. Yeah. But I do think that we need to have real evidence-based research and mental health professionals who are trained and understanding attachment and development and domestic violence in the courthouses so that judges can rely on people with, you know, correct information to give them. How do we assess the yeah. risk? If we don't agree on how we define domestic violence, for example, um, how are we going to protect a woman who is being abused when we don't see it? quite as domestic mm-hmm. violence or we don't ask the right questions to find out how long this history has been going on or what happened in the past. There is a place mm-hmm. for training and there is a place for like informed understanding and not kind of watering down domestic violence isn't really that, you know. It's just situational, it's just high conflict. Yeah.
0: Well, in and you know kind of coming full circle to your um, uh, recent work and the traumatic exposure uh, to children, where where is this going to go? Who's going to read this? Is is the uh, you know our judges likely to pick up this book and go? Yeah, let's read this. Um, or I hope so. Our psychologists or are, well, yeah, I mean we all hope so. But what I'm trying to say is, what can we do to get this information to the psychologists and the judges and the people who need it? Is there, I mean, obviously there are networks, and, you know, I mean, anybody can go on Amazon, right? But mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. just people who have to vote on a judge, people who have seen their sisters or their brothers go through this kind of thing, what can we do to help
1: educate the people who are making the decisions? Or can we? That's a really important decision. Um, that's a really important question. Um, you know, I think that more transparency is going to help. Um, and having conversations, um, for example, with the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, when we heard Dr. Ford, you know, testify, so she was really explaining about what trauma is right after sexual assault, why she remembers it always, you know, she remembered their laughter, she remembered vividly what happened. People need to understand, like, what is this, right? Just as we would understand what a broken leg looks like, we can understand what PTSD is, right? So, you know, we need to sort of get rid of some of the stigma about people saying, I don't want to be a victim, because it really domestic violence can happen to anybody. I have clients Mm -hmm. who are doctors and lawyers and teachers and nurses, and it's all walks of life. So we need to get rid of some of the stereotypes about what this is. And I think that's every doctor's office, um, schools, courthouses need to have, you know, videos and training about what this is going in the waiting rooms. Um, Because there's just too, you know, too many old conceptions and old myths about and stereotypes about who domestic violence happens to and what it is. And, you know, we have a lot of reasons why we want to keep the whole community safe. And why we want to promote healthy child development, and you know, and how we need to recognize that domestic violence is really bad for little ones, and you know, we yes. need to enforce this and enforce custody laws, and that, and I think that has to be spearheaded from the top as well. We don't right now yes. have a culture where those kinds of issues are respected or recognized.
0: Well, and I think we also have to educate people that domestic violence isn't just a black eye and a broken bone?
1: No, it's not. It's I, lots I of think people. It's all through all races, all classes, and all professions. Yep. Yes.
0: And I but also think that it takes done. many
1: forms, right?
0: Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, what about, you know, getting back to the judges here who are making these decisions about our children, what Are there requirements, and I'm sure it varies from state to state, probably county by county, lawyers, they're all required to have continuing education in order to maintain their licenses. You don't have to have a license to be a judge. In New York you do.
1: Right, you need to be a practicing lawyer. But actually not always. Upstate New York people don't have to be lawyers. That's true. Um, That's correct. So yeah.
0: your question, and I think what in my case, qual- if you pass the bar exam, you don't even have to be a lawyer to be a lawyer. <laughs> right. I think a lot, in, well, in a lot of states, so, they, you don't have to go to law school to be a lawyer if you can pass the bar exam. <laughs> so, not in New York um,
1: anymore, but, but that may be still true. You know, yeah. I, the question is not, maybe there is training, you know, on domestic violence, but who's doing the training? What kind of training and, is it? And are they getting information Mm -hmm. from lots of different sources? We're just hearing from people who think of domestic violence as rare and are teaching about high-conflict divorce because there are many other professionals, mental health professionals, who think that high-conflict divorce, that whole concept, is very empirically weak. And if you look, you know, so are you learning that, you know, physical abuse sort of happens when people are angry and they split up? And it's situational, so it's all going to calm down when the kids are, you know, when they're all separated and living in separate Mm -hmm. households? Or do you understand that it's got this pervasive, toxic impact that can linger for decades?
0: Right.
1: And so there needs to be, you know, we need to integrate the information and the research we have on public health and epidemiology Mm -hmm. and, you know, and adverse childhood experiences and what they do, you know, to people who are adults Mm -hmm. decades later. And it's a very expensive problem for the rest of us. So Well,
0: and I am seeing more and more. The, the thing that makes me hopeful is I'm seeing more and more, like from the uh, AFCC and, the, you know, different, different bar associations, I'm seeing more and more things about trauma-informed, trauma-informed. But what I'm not seeing is that trauma-informed phrase coupled with abuse, domestic violence. And I'm right. thinking that there's, at this point, a disconnect there, that the there decision is. makers are are not equating trauma, school shooting, or the, you know, whatever, with the trauma that these children experience with abusers, you know, in and domestic their violence Right.
1: And because their mothers. We see a lot yeah. of pathologizing women who have been traumatized, right, instead of, helping them and supporting them. So Judith Herman talks about, she's a seminal researcher in trauma. She talks about you can't really establish safety and and a pathway to health if you don't remove the person from the source of their terror, right? So in domestic violence, which is a source of trauma, right? And it can, you know, chronic exposure can cause post-traumatic stress disorder. And we ask women and children in the courts during custody to continue to have contact with this person who is abusive. And then we say, look how crazy she is.
0: Exactly. I'm sorry? Exactly. It's crazy-making behavior. And I I, I actually had a family court judge on my show, and I asked, you know, how do you make the decision if, if you have two people in front of you? One with documented, you know, I'm smart enough to know that you need to put in that word, with documented domestic violence in their background, and the other one who does not and has been the primary caregiver, how does that family judge look and decide to give custody to the one with the documented domestic violence? And her response to me just, I mean, it's been three years, at least since I interviewed that woman, and I still fall off my chair every time I think about it, because She said, well, you have to understand, you've got one person who's just absolutely frantic and she just doesn't even have it all together and and she just can't even take care of her own life. How is she going to take care of that of her children? And then you've got one who is in charge and in control. So if the domestic violence isn't that bad, we'll give the kids to him. And I'm thinking, do you know one thing about domestic violence? Because you've right. just described the pathology. He's in control because that's what he does. She's frantic yes. because she knows he gets his way no matter what, and he wants her kids.
1: And I think she that wants. if you leave the situation and you get yourself out to safety, but you can't take the kids with you and protect them, I think you're re-traumatized right. through that. Right? Oh, God, yeah. well, children, and you want to protect children. They're your, vulnerable.
0: You have your yeah, half of your support system going, well, why don't you leave? You get out of there, you get out of there, you know. So, you know, I mean, I'm gobsmacked that any woman goes through that kind of an experience and, and has even a remotely normal psych- psychology psychological profile after going through that. I mean, I know. It, it's just horrible. It's horrible. But, you know,
1: to those uh-huh. to those who say that someone who's been traumatized can't be an effective parent, um you know, shame on the rest of us because if we protect her and give her the services she needs, then she's yeah. going to be usually okay. And she's going to be yeah. an effective parent. And we will have taught her children that violence is wrong. And they will see that the non-offending parent because the role of the non-offending parent is so critical. If the non-offending, if we help that non-offending parent, typically the battered mother, and we help her care for her children and be a good parent and protect her, her children are going to do mm-hmm. better. Because the role of a non offending parent with trauma is very, very important for children. So all of this is like taking common sense and standing it on its head, you know, and and distorting yeah. things. So
0: have you? Uh, what's next for you? I, 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 you know, your your study or your meta-analysis um, uh, is clearly, you know, uh, groundbreaking here. I mean, that you've pulled this all together so in a reasonable way that all of us can understand is uh, is wonderful. Um, and again, I want to repeat that it's, uh, the name of your study is traumatic exposure in children during custody litigation available in Family and Intimate Partner Violence Quarterly Spring 2018 volume 10 so look that up and uh, of course it's Lisa Fischel, FISCHEL hyphen Wolovic R W O L O V I C K it's good reading and i know that uh, sometimes reading studies is not for everybody but but th- read this it's good Thank and you. of course Thank I, may as well, I may i'll throw in the book as well because and that's that's easier reading traumatic Divorce and Separation, and I'm sure that's available on Amazon, is it not?
1: It is, but it's also available on Oxford's uh, Oxford University Press's website as well. But it's also being sold on um, Amazon. And people who like it, please okay. review it on Amazon. And yeah. That would be oh, yeah. appreciated. I'm going and to I'll keep writing and I'm going to keep teaching. For- yeah. I'm sorry. I, I'm go gonna ahead. give a
0: little plug if you if you're going have having sold books on Amazon. You don't exist as an author if you're not on Amazon, but I gotta tell you, Amazon keeps a chunk. Uh I mean, they they take a huge chunk <laughs> from the sale of that book. So so go wow. to Oxford Press. You know. <laughs> my 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 editors
1: will appreciate that. <laughs> Yep. my editors will be very <laughs> and, uh, happy. <laughs> just,
0: you know—I mean, it's almost useless. You know, I hope Amazon—nobody from Amazon is listening because I'll never sell another book from them if I do. But I mean, it's just gobsmacking the chunk that they—the percentage that they keep when when they sell a book. So if you can go to Oxford University Press, do that, and and you know, let let the publisher, let the people who did the work they keep a little bit more in their of the change in their pockets uh lisa what's next for you i would love to see a longitudinal study we talked at the beginning of the show about you know zero to two-year-olds and two to three-year-olds i would love to see the um a a longitudinal study on how is this impacting kids through their their adolescence and into adulthood
1: is any of that on
0: the back burner for you
1: Um, I'm probably not going to be the person who does that kind of research, but I'm certainly going to continue to study and work and research in domestic violence and child custody. So um, I'm, you know, for me it's therapeutic to sit down and to write um, about a lot Mm. of what i see in the courthouse um, and to put it together with the research. Um, And to talk to people who are doing the research is fascinating. Yeah.
0: Well, and so important. To get that research and get what's happening in these courts out to ordinary people, I still speak to people, and if I say something about, well, I spoke to a woman who lost custody of her children, and the response invariably is, "What did she do?" I know. She married. She married an abuser. That's what she did. She was a perfectly. I don't great know mother. if you're.
1: Are you familiar with the battered mothers child custody conference that usually is held in Albany? Because you see I've, mothers I've it, who have I've lost. Yeah, I I went there last um last May and I was just so impressed the resilience and the strength and the perspective and the humor from women who have lost custody. Um they're professionals, yeah. they're, you know, really, you know, strong, important people and these things have happened to them that make no sense, right? So I think people have to mm-hmm. get it that it it's not about who we are, it's about the system and the power and um, the abuse of power. Mm-hmm. It's not about being a bad parent.
0: It's about no. the system. It's right. about the system. Its biases, and um, yeah. you know, I, I, I'll, I'll refrain from all of the the other words I was going to use. But you know, it's it's not about being a bad mother. And yet, when you're thrust in that position, I've seen mothers. I've never thank God been there myself, but I've seen mothers who have gone through this and. It it is just staggering, staggering, Um, you know, for these women to go through life bearing up with, you know, difficult circumstances and still being mothers and then suddenly having those children ripped away from them because they're a piece of furniture that needs to be divided equally. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I wanted to uh, mention when we were talking, we have just a minute or so left is that when we're talking um, courts and child custody, it seems to me that the courts have kind of embraced this idea that everything is equal. Everything is, is, is equal um, mm-hmm. and that fathers and mothers should be looked at equally. And yet we're talking about that 10% of, you know, quote-unquote high-conflict high divorces. That, no, you can't look at those equally because there has been a history of abuse. These are not the same men that the other 90% of the fathers are. Do,
1: do, right.
0: do you see what I'm saying about the, the courts seem to have the notion that in order to be fair, that everybody has to be viewed as potentially equal? Even though they're right. dealing with a population that inherently is not equal.
1: Right. And so you really have to look at the the history of caretaking in the family, right? You have to look at the markers mm-hmm. and um and you know, who took parenting leave, um, you know, who's the primary caretaker? You you know, and it's usually kinda yeah. staring you in the face, even with people who work. Mm-hmm. You know, who's juggling everything? You can kind of figure out. Um yep if you want to you know if you don't but you have to want to deal with facts and yeah. that's yeah. the that point we have to deal with why why is it so fraught to talk about you know restricting fathers abusive fathers access to their children through supervised visits or you know custody orders that they where they don't yeah. have, why does that bother us so much And I don't know the answer yet. That's my next project to figure that one out. Good.
0: Good. Let me know when you do. Okay. (laughs) But, yeah, it's true. It's true. I mean, this this notion, and I think it goes back to the notion of ownership. You know? Yeah. That's my table. That's my table. How dare you take that away from me, even if I have been hammering on it and, and, you know, uh, writing, you know, things on it and sticking gum underneath. It's still my table and I get it, you know? um and okay. i think it's that whole notion of possession along with a healthy dose of sexism and all that other stuff and you know we that we won't go into <laughs> lisa thank you so much uh thank for coming you Heather. on and- and sharing your research. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, Traumatic exposure in children during custody litigation in family and intimate partner violence quarterly and traumatic divorce and separation from Oxford University Press. Lisa Fischel-Wolfeck, thank you very much for being with us and uh, let us know when you finish your next study.
1: I will. Thank you very much, Heather. Thank you for
0: listening. Join us next week for Three Women, Three Ways.